Welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. Produce is abundant, and so is the sun. As we're heading into July, and with the temperature rising and the lakes and beaches calling us, there's one topic that is on everyone's mind, or perhaps should be, and that is sunscreen. Is it necessary? Is it healthy? Is it safe? And what else can we do to protect ourselves from potentially harmful rays while we are spending as much time as we do in the sun? with the force that, after all, makes life on this beautiful planet possible. Sunscreen, understanding ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives, our topic today here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Well, you're talking about produce, and you're talking about plenty of sun. The interesting thing is, is I was just reading a study from the Harvard School of Public Health, and they were saying that Americans really aren't getting as much of the fruits and vegetables that they should probably eat. How many fruit servings of fruits and vegetables do you two eat a day? Oh, man. Way to put us on the spot, Mark. You, it fluctuates for me. I mean, there are times in my life where I feel like I eat 12 or more servings a day. I know, Mark, we were talking at some point, you were saying when you have your evening salad, that's like nine servings. And I found that to be the case. If I eat a big salad during the day, I'm going to get a lot. But there are certainly days, and I will fess up to this, like this past weekend, I was kind of on a carb trip. And I think I only had like three, four or five servings in a day. Now, that's not my that's not my baseline. That's really like a super indulgent weekend. I would say I usually 12 is probably about my my average mm -hmm. sometimes more sometimes less <laughs> but we don't have servings in in germany and I, so this serving thing never i don't even know what that and i know what it means theoretically but i couldn't tell you if a a big salad is a dinner salad is that four servings or six like well, I, i don't know about a half how, cup how, how about you, a half cup of vegetables but like do you squeeze your spinach at the bottom of the cup so you know that that layer is one serving or is it the volume i mean obviously not with the air but mm -hmm. it's just a tricky that's why you know i i love that the government gives gives us those generalizations or general guidelines and yet if somebody said eat an apple and a banana and a big salad every day I think people would be better off, actually. I think people would know what to do rather than, you know, five to 12. I mean, that's such a funny number anyway. 12 is almost three times five. <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> Which you still didn't answer the question. Um, he's I, dodging uh, intentionally because he's on, he's on national radio right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I do, Mark. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, Sita, you wanted to comment? Well, I want to because that that actually raises a really good point because not everybody can conceptualize what a serving is. Um, and my understanding is that one uh, one serving is either one cup of raw vegetable or half a cup of cooked vegetable. Let's see. <laughs> 
And we're talking about a household measuring cup. And so if mm-hmm. you ever looked at a household eight ounces of, of, mm-hmm. of a yeah. cup, it's it's really nothing. So, Helga, going back to your point, though, because the average American gets, and if you don't, if you take potatoes out of this equation, which is a huge thing, yeah. they get about two to three a day. And so you're looking at a half of an apple, a half of an orange would be considered a serving, you know, a cup or a half cup of lettuce would be considered a serving. So when you look at a salad that I eat probably for dinner, I'm, you know, I'm looking at at least probably eight or nine servings right there. And that's not counting the fruit I eat every day. But Helga, they do, most of the websites that obviously we don't all go and frequent, um, do have breakdowns exactly like you're asking for, where it's like, if you eat an apple, Hmm. that's two servings. Great. Right, a day. And so... The interesting part for me is, is I couldn't fathom when I read this article, I was saying, I can't imagine that I would eat that little a day. I just, it's beyond my... And, I, you know, you are Mr. Produce, of course. I would just, I would be shocked if you didn't, because really, even when you work, you try and you sample and you, like, you eat produce on an hourly basis. <laughs> so well, you are not the classic <laughs> example of the average American by far. I mean, he's I'd eating say. produce at work, right? Because right. he's he working, he's consulting in these produce, produce. departments. That's but that's right. also, he's there all day. So when it's time to go home yeah. for dinner, he can just grab what's there. And I think that that's a big point of what makes this a challenge if we're talking about the whole nation. You know what I mean? We are very fortunate living in California. We've got access to lots of great fruits and vegetables. We also have really peak flavor because a lot of things are coming locally. They don't need to be picked unripe in order to make it to us on time. So there are a lot of things that we get here that make us very fortunate. But that doesn't mean that people who live in other parts of the country or who don't work in produce Mm. departments can't still eat the same amount of abundant fruits and vegetables. It just takes a little bit more effort, potentially. You can join the CSA. You can have a garden, even if it's a small garden, to grow, you know, some herbs and some cucumbers and peppers or tomatoes, whatever you can, depending on your location. And also, you know, Mark had said to us, he talks about this a lot, if you can develop a relationship with your your produce department and and maybe consider going to a food co-op instead of going to whatever is the mega grocery store in your neighborhood because they like to educate their customers on how to shop. And that's one of the tips that I found to be most helpful in getting more produce into a person's diet is from, I, I read it first, I think in Michael Pollan, one of Michael Pollan's books where he says, shop on the periphery of a grocery store because that's where all the fresh food is. So that's the first thing I do when I go to a grocery store is I start my shopping in the produce department, not in the aisles with boxed and packaged food. Mm -hmm. And also, I recommend to people, and I've done this with my clients, I did this when I was cooking for them, and this is what I recommend to them too, plan your meals around vegetables, particularly (laughs) the seasonal vegetables. So right now we're at the tail end of asparagus season. But when asparagus was finally in the market, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to make with all this asparagus? So I was guaranteeing Mm -hmm. that there would be fresh vegetables in my diet because I had asparagus. But then I could say, what can I put with this? I can do a pasta. I can do roasted mushrooms, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a helpful thing to to plan what vegetable you're going to have to guarantee you get it in your diet and then build the accompaniments to match that. Yeah, very true. I mean, the the first point you made, Sita, was that there's something throughout the country. We do have a 12 months, almost 10 months growing season throughout California. If you really take all of California, there's a 12 months growing season. We don't have that anywhere else in the country or maybe even in the world. That's pretty exceptional, um, our position here. That's true. 
but there is a, a cultural aspect. I just spent um, a couple of weeks in Germany and I have grown up there, so I'm used to meat and, and bread, right, starches. Uh, or potatoes. It's really classic. The, the the German culture embraces meat because after the Second World War, five, eight years later, when meat slowly made its way into into the German diet, it stood for kind of the peacetime that, you know, the, the horrors of the war had, had been overcome in a way, at least economically, and meat became this treasure in a way. And I was shocked this time to see even in June or May, when there's wonderful produce available in, in Germany, that the, the staples of the German diets are bread and meat every day. I mean, three times a day sometimes. Even my friends who are health conscious and my age, uh, daily at least, big portions of meat. It's, uh, so you're right. If you, if you build your diet around vegetables first and then whatever you add, it's such a completely different base at the end of the year mm. of your overall vegetable consumption. It's true. Mark is just nodding. No, it's, it, well, it's true. And CT, you brought up the, the great point that Earl and I bring up all the time is create a relationship with your produce guy. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to take certain, I'm taking certain people under my wing and uh, teaching them personally about produce so that they can have a, a different experience than they had before. That's wonderful. Yes, produce always. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And today we are talking about sunscreen, understanding ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives. That's the topic of this hour here in An Organic Conversation. But before we dive into that topic, of course, we'll continue our education around how to live the most sustainable and healthy life. In this case, it's called Sitarani Palomar, a.k.a. Chef Sita and her holistic bite. Thank you, Helga. So I had a neighbor who lived across from me in an apartment in San Francisco, this really healthy gentleman in his 70s. And he had so much life force, his skin was always glowing. And he told me once in a conversation that exercise is like brushing his teeth. It is not optional. He does it every single day. And I realized this is a cornerstone. In addition to a healthy diet, the fact that he exercises every day. And for him, that was going on a run because he was a marathon runner throughout his life. And and this is something I just got back from a fabulous retreat where we made time to do yoga every single day. It was only 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes on some day and was starting at 630 in the morning. But it still gave me time to be ready to eat breakfast by 8am. And it changed my entire relationship to the day. And since I've been home for a couple of days, I found that I'm feeling really less energetic. My muscles are not as fluid as they were when I was making the time. So that's what I want to talk about today, how to incorporate healthy exercise in a sustainable way, because it's easy to talk yourself out of it. Very easy to say this is a big time commitment, and I don't know where I'm going to find this in my day. But I think that a lot of it has to do with that approach, that mindset that if you're going to exercise, you need to carve out an hour of your time or 45 minutes, whatever story might be around what you need to do in order to get good exercise. You can get good exercise even with 15 or 20 minutes in your day, and that's a good place to start. And some things that you can do to get you going is begin by stretching 
in bed. This is a really, really great thing to waken your muscles and even maybe flood your body with enough energy to get you out of bed and continue moving your body. You can lay your clothes out, your exercise clothes, your running shoes, your yoga mat, your dog leash, whatever that might be, lay that out next to your bed so you basically roll out of bed into whatever your exercise is going to be for the morning or make yourself a really rockin' playlist before you go to bed so you wake up excited to listen to this new piece of art that you've created to go along with your workout. And I'm hoping that these simple tips might get you out of the mindset where you ask yourself during the day, am I going to work out today? And instead, ask yourself, when am I going to work out today? And that was this week's Holistic Bite. <laughs> it's true. Mark, that has been your topic for a year now. It's you true. Water gymnastics, I heard. You should <laughs> see me on that parallel bar. <laughs> um, no, but it is, it, Hesita, it's right, you hit the nail right on the head. If I don't, if I miss it for three days, all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh my goodness, what's going on with my body here? <laughs> And as soon as I got in, yesterday I made sure I went and got in the water. And it was like instantaneous feeling better of just because I was exercising once you start doing it. And you just have to make it part of your routine. I love it. I, I love what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, body feeling, they, they, there's scientific evidence out now that it releases all these happy hormones. It's, uh, you know, I think we are made to move. Whatever exercise really means to you, exercise, quote, unquote, it could be the half hour walk that you do in the afternoon but i think we are made to move and 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 most studies show that a sedentary lifestyle where you just sit a lot is will catch up on your health not just on your feeling and well-being but so yeah if we feel great it's usually healthy that's what we say on this show thank you sita Sunscreen, understanding ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives is the topic of the hour here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helber. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Summer is here. Produce is abundant and so is the sun. How do we protect ourselves best and do we need to? What is the best alternative for sunscreen if you don't like sunscreen is it safe understanding the ingredients understanding the risks and all natural alternatives our topic today here everything you ever wanted to know about sunscreen and now with us calling in from washington dc is the director of product development of badger balm 
a natural skincare company, and the director of product development is Rebecca Hamilton. Rebecca, are you with us? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Great to have you. Thank you for being part of an organic conversation today as we are discussing sunscreen. Yeah. So, Rebecca, I, you know, I tend not to use sunscreen. I wear a wide brim hat. I wear long sleeves. I wear a banana, a bandana, not a banana, around my <laughs> neck. And I try to stay out of the sun from like 10 to 2 o'clock. So my question to you, actually, I have two of them, is, is it really necessary to use sunscreen and is it healthy, which is one of the reasons that I haven't worn sunscreen? And what are the, mo what are the most concerning findings you're finding around sunscreen usage? Well, the first thing I would say is I think you're doing absolutely the right thing. Uh, one of the most important things that people can do is just be conscious of how they are out in the sun. So absolutely wear a wide-brimmed hat, absolutely stay out of the sun during peak hours. Uh, we really think that sunscreen is great as one added thing that you can do to protect yourself from UV rays. So you would use sunscreen if you're going to be out without shade during peak hours and you don't have a choice. You're going to be swimming or at the beach. Uh, so it's really a lot of people use sunscreen as the only defense and I think it's important to do what you're doing and then have sunscreen as one thing that you can also do. Uh, in terms of whether or not it's safe and healthy, um, that is a really controversial question, which is why you probably have me on the radio today. A lot of people are asking that same question. <laughs> and I think it really depends on which sunscreen you choose. Sunscreens are not all equal. They're very, very different. Uh, there's over 20 different active ingredients approved by the FDA. And some of them have uh, health and safety concerns, documented health and safety concerns. And then also the inactive ingredients are very different. Uh, so some of them are really good for your skin, really simple, uh, things like basic pure plant oils and beeswax. And some of them are harsh chemicals. So a lot depends on which sunscreen you choose. And it's, it's actually interesting that you bring that up, sunscreen and uh, active ingredients and, and non-active ingredients um, in sunscreen. It's, it's almost the same conversation we have around uh, chemicals, around agrochemicals or, or you know, household chemicals that we use. There's the concern about the active ingredient that does have to be tested for toxicity to some degree, but the non-active active ingredients are sometimes as toxic and interestingly enough that that cocktail of of non-active ingredients and active ingredients usually does not have to be tested as the final product not even or not in 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 chemicals that we buy for household use or in agriculture is that different in in skincare is there at least a test to to test the final product the end the end result of non-active and active ingredients Well, sunscreen is technically an over-the-counter drug, so it is regulated differently from other cosmetics and personal care products. Uh, it is tested for efficacy, so um, we mm -hmm. test the sunscreen to see whether or not it provides adequate UVB protection or UVA protection. Uh, it's not required that we test for safety. So uh, wow. our company does, uh, we register our products in the EU, so we do follow EU Uh, safety guidelines, which are far more stringent than what we have here in the U.S., and but it's not required. So, that's, Rebecca, that's amazing. I want to tag on to Mark's last question, which is um, about what the concerning findings are around sunscreen usage, because it sounds like there's a there's a broad spectrum, not to 
have a play on words here, but there's a broad spectrum when we talk about sunscreen, because you were talking about chemical sunscreens and the chemicals that that are are ingredients within the sunscreen. But there is also this whole movement or line product lines now of mineral or natural sunscreens. And so these are different ingredients. They're different modes of activation. And there are questions about whether they are equally effective. What is the effectiveness between traditional chemical sunscreens and and mineral or natural sunscreens? And these concerns that people have about sunscreens, how do they apply to these two different categories? Well, first I would say that all sunscreens are tested exactly the same way. They're all FDA-regulated over-the-counter drugs, so they all have to adhere to the same efficacy testing, so they all have the same efficacy. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is that it's the, the terms chemical and natural are really industry terms. Uh, what we have is mineral-based active ingredients, and then we have kind of synthetic chemical ingredient, active ingredients. The base ingredients often don't necessarily line up with the claims. Natural is not a regulated claim. So unless you see a product that's also certified natural, and then you can follow that standard to see what that standard defines natural as, natural could really mean anything. So the, are you wondering exactly how they act different or how that really relates to their safety concerns? Yeah, but both of those things. Because I, you know, I remember being a young kid on the beach and, and my mother wanting to make sure that my skin was safe and make sure that I had sunscreen on and, and how my relationship to that has evolved over the years. And, and I fall much into the same category as Mark, which is big hats, being in the shade, trying to stay out during peak hours. But for the times when I am out there, you know, my concerns are about when they say, you know, put this sunscreen on and wait 20 minutes before you go into the sun. And I'm thinking, well, that's going to have to absorb into my skin. And I'm, you know, I mean, what what if I were six years old? What if this is virgin skin being exposed to the sun, but also being exposed to these chemicals? And and what about nanoparticles and all of these things that I'm reading? Like what, what falls into chemical sunscreen as far as how it works and the concerns around that? And then how is mineral sunscreen different? Sure. So the first thing I would say about chemical sunscreen is you're absolutely right. You have to wait 20 minutes because it does get absorbed into your skin and actually isn't active until it absorbs into kind of the middle layer of your skin close to living cell tissue. So the outer layers of your skin are dead cell tissue. So the chemical sunscreen is designed to get absorbed and that's where it becomes active. And the reason you have to reapply it every two hours is that it actually breaks down as it interacts with the UV rays. So it neutralizes uh, part of the harm or some of the harm that the UV rays is going to cause, but it also is doing that reaction very close to living cell tissue. The mineral sunscreens, on the other hand, and this includes nanoparticles, sit on the outer layer of your skin. It really doesn't get past that dead cell tissue, which means that when it it mostly reflects, it's a physical barrier, so it's mostly reflecting the UV rays. It does um, absorb some of them, so there is a little bit of a reaction taking place, much less of a reaction than the chemical sunscreen, and that reaction takes place on dead cell tissue. So... The chemical sunscreens, the reason that we chose, Badger chose to use mineral sunscreens is that we were concerned that the chemical sunscreens are designed to be absorbed into your skin and that actually a fair percentage of the active ingredients are getting absorbed into your bloodstream. And um, that's one of the findings that the Environmental Working Group, which is a nonprofit consumer advocacy group who's been really focused on sunscreen for a number of years, that was one of the big concerns that they had is that they saw these chemical sunscreen ingredients getting absorbed into the bloodstream and that some of them have documented health concerns, particularly being carcinogenic 
um, oxybenzone being the one that they found the most concerning data on. We're speaking with Rebecca Hamilton, the Director of Product Development, who also holds a degree in ethnobotany. She's the Director of Product Development for Badger Balm in this hour today on sunscreen, understanding ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives. Rebecca, I, I couldn't help but think that when you put chemicals on your skin that you have to let into your skin for 20 minutes before they can start really working next to 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 a live cell tissue to then break down chemical reactions within your organism. It sounds like marinating a chicken and exposing it then to <laughs> high heat. That can, that by default, that cannot be, is there any way to make that healthy? Is there any way to have an active ingredients, ingredient that creates a chemical reaction within your skin, our largest organ next to living cell tissue, to make that a healthy process? You know, I honestly... I don't know, and that's been my big concern, is that you can have documented health concerns, but then you can have concerns just based around what you know of what reaction is taking place. So although not all chemical active sunscreen ingredients have documented health constraints, uh, concerns, I still, I, I would personally be concerned, which is why, you know, I really feel strongly that if you're going to choose a sunscreen, that a mineral sunscreen is going to offer you that safest protection simply because... It sits on the outside of your skin and doesn't come into contact with that living cell tissue. And it brings up, regardless like, of any other concerns. Right, exactly. It brings up these other concerns. Of course, people don't eat necessarily the cleanest diet. We are exposed to water or, or, or drink water, um, other environmental toxins in our household. So there's this this term total body burden that we are dealing with um, environmental toxins that we are exposed to, whether we like it or we don't really have a choice. So there's a certain level of toxicity in our or pollution in our um, daily environment already anyway it sounds like introducing even for f out of fear for skin cancer or or damage cell damage that can come through the sun it seems like exposing your body further m you know whatever it will do regarding the sun if it will really protect you or not but the consequences seem not understood enough to make active ingredient sunscreen Uh, really uh, uh, the best recommendation. Uh, I had a, a follow-up question with that. The SPF, right, the sun protection levels, when I was uh, younger, uh, just as Sita played around at the lakes in, in Michigan, when I was in Europe, the highest sunscreen I remember as a child, and I've never seen a double digit, was like a 12 or a 15 for a fortune of money that my parents bought this little bottle that was considered a sunblocker. I think now we have SPF that is 60 or 80 or 100. Does that mean more chemicals were introduced to have greater reactions to minimize UVA and B? Well, the first thing I would say is that the SPF has nothing to do with UVA protection. It really is talking about UVB protection. Mm. And sunscreen is a very new concept so when we first started creating sunscreen as an industry, the first thing we saw is that uh, when people go out in the sun and they're exposed to too much sun, they get a burn. So how do we protect against the burn? So the original sunscreen chemicals were designed to protect against the burn. And actually, the FDA played around with the idea of calling it the sunburn protection factor, but it's a sun protection factor. And the test that the FDA uses to determine whether or not you're protected against UVB has to do with whether or not you get a burn. Uh, mm. So that test was created back when 
uh, we didn't have higher SDS. And actually, the highest number that really most people need is, is an SPS 15, although now the recognized standard is about an SPS 30. But the problem with the scale is that it's not linear. So an SPS 60 doesn't give you twice the protection that an SPS 30 gives you. So those higher numbers are pretty misleading, and actually the FDA has given advance notice that they may be disallowing SDF 50s uh, or anything above an SDF 50 in the wow. future. And, and so that... those higher SDFs are misleading. And what I would say is that the SDF 30, if you think about it this way, an SDF 15 gives you about 93% protection from the UVB rays. An SDF 30 gives you about 97% protection. And an SDF 60 gives you about 98% protection. So you can imagine that SDF 100 is not giving you a whole lot more protection, and it's not telling you whether or not you're getting protected against UVA. And how is that reached? How, how do you get to, between you, um, SPF 15 to SPF, let's say, 100? How, how, does, how is it um, in the product? How is that achieved? By, by introducing you, more, more chemicals? You, Sometimes it's adding more chemicals, although a sunscreen is different from many drugs in that the active ingredient is part of what makes it work, but also the base ingredients actually make a big difference, particularly in a middle of sunscreen. So higher active ingredient doesn't necessarily mean higher SPF. You have to have a really good spreadability or lay down. So if you enhance that, you could get a higher SPF. Um, so the active ingredient, well, generally speaking, higher will mean higher SPF. There's a lot of other things that uh, a company can play around with and uh, to increase that SPF because the only way they're testing it is they're looking at whether or not your skin is getting burned over a certain period of time. So it's not, it's a far from perfect test. Yes. And there's actually a lot of questions that people have about how well the test determines whether or not you're going to be protected. But the other thing I had mentioned for a moment there, then SPF 15 is really as much as you need. The problem, the reason people keep getting higher and higher SPFs and needing that is that um, most people don't apply enough sunscreen. So when you apply half the amount of sunscreen that uh, you're supposed to, you don't get half the protection, you get the square root of the protection. Oh, wow. Okay. Really? We want you to walk us through all that and also what people, when they look at a bottle of sunscreen, what they need to know about, what to look out for, what to watch out for, uh, what to seek, and perhaps what to avoid. When we come back right after the break, we're speaking with Rebecca Hamilton, the Director of Product Development for Badger Balm, who's joining us today from Washington, D.C. in this hour here on an organic conversation about sunscreen. As the summer months are coming, the temperatures are rising, and the beaches are calling us, we want to understand ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce. 
at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Sunscreen on everyone's mind right now, of course, heading into July. Understanding ingredients, risks, and natural alternatives. In this hour here on an organic conversation, we are speaking with Rebecca Hamilton of Badger Baum, the director of product development, who also holds a degree in ethnobotany. She's joining us today from Washington, D.C. Rebecca, before we went to the break, you said something that was really very very eye-opening for me, which was talking about how when people apply less than is the recommended amount of sunscreen to their body, they might be thinking that, okay, well, I applied half what I was supposed to, so that means I'm getting half protection. You said it's actually quite a bit less than that, which is debunking one myth that we need to understand. And I wanted to add to that list of myths what my myth has been, which is if I get SPF 30 over SPF 15, it lasts longer. So let's look at these (laughs) myths and really understand what are we doing to ourselves when we don't understand the labels? Sure. Well, it is actually very, very confusing. So not surprising that there are a lot of myths out there. The truth is not going to be straightforward. I'm just going to put it straight out there. So in essence, yes, you could stay out a little bit longer with an SPS 30 than an SPS 15. But the question is, how much longer? In order to be able to know exactly how long you can stay out with an SPS 30, you'd have to know how long you would take to get burned on any given day. And that depends on how strong the sun is, how much cloud cover there is, whether you're in direct sunlight or shade. And so while you can theoretically stay out 30 times more longer than you could with no sunscreen, you don't really know how long that is. So that's the first thing I'll say. So really, all you know from those numbers is that SPF 15, you can stay out a bit longer than you could if you didn't have anything. And SPF 30, you can stay out a bit longer than that, than if you had nothing. Mm-hmm. So without all those factors, it's very hard to know exactly what time that means. So best thing you can do is to say that if the sun is really bright, you want a slightly higher SPF, and that you want to reapply every couple of hours. Uh, reapplying is not going to reset the clock back to one. It's like putting a toast in a toaster oven uh, and toasting it for two minutes and then taking it out and then putting it back in. It's hardly toasted all the time. Your skin. <laughs> That's so a good the analogy. The way I like to think about it is that if you imagine an SPS 15 is going to block 93% of UV rays, that means for every 100 photons, seven will be getting through your skin, whereas if you had no sunscreen, for every 100 photons, 100 would be getting through. Mm. With an SPF 30, since that blocks 97%, only three photons would be getting through. If it took you 100 photons to get a burn, then you calculate how many photons or how many of those 100 photons could hit your skin before you get a burn. And which that one? Yeah, totally. No, you lost me there, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I was that's following okay. it. That oh, was good. great, Rebecca. One, yeah, well, two were following you. I... I <laughs> <laughs> tried. I really tried. But um, the, the question I, I had coming out of, of this, what you were j- just saying, is what ingredients are we looking at when we are talking about chemical-based active ingredient sunscreen? And what ingredients are we talking about when we talk about natural alternatives or, or mineral blockers? What are the most commonly used, um, you know, two, three, four in each category? And what should people look out for? Um, what should they, they look for and what should they avoid when they look at a sunscreen label? Sure. So probably the three most common chemical ingredients are oxybenzone, octanoxate, and abobenzone. 
Oxybenzone is the one that has the most documented concerns, and that's in quite a few sunscreens. And I personally actually have a physical reaction when I smell someone walking by with oxybenzone on them. It closes my throat up a little bit. So just from that, I really avoid that, and I, I try and tell people to avoid that. But also um, many studies have come out about oxybenzone and concerns around it being carcinogenic. Avobenzone, uh, contrarily, is something that should be in chemical sunscreens because it's the only chemical sunscreen that will give you UVA protection. It breaks down, it's unstable and breaks down really quickly. So what you'll see when you look at a chemical sunscreen is three to four or even five or six different chemicals. And that's because each individual chemical covers a small portion of the UV range. Not one single chemical will cover all of it. And so they have to fill them in to stabilize them. It's a really complicated, unstable process. So they have to add, you know, different chemicals to stabilize the avobenzone, the avobenzone to provide UVA, and the oxybenzone doesn't provide enough of it. So that's kind of a little rundown on your actives for chemical. And there are uh, quite a few other chemicals, but those are the most commonly used ones. And Rebecca, and can, then, you, can you just give us a quick little rundown on UVA and UVB? Uh, just, the, you know, kind of what, how does that work on your skin? Sure. So um, we're looking at the spectrum from UVA, it actually goes to UVC. And the UVB is the one that people first looked at in terms of needing protection because that's the one that causes the sunburn. It has shorter wavelengths, so it doesn't penetrate as deeply. It's really acting on kind of that surface and a little bit into that living cell tissue in the middle layer of skin. And when you get too much UVB exposure, you're going to get a sunburn, uh, that red skin. You also, it could potentially lead toward uh, skin cancer. UVA, which they're more recently uh, looking into, and that's only actually in the past couple of years that the FDA has required any testing to verify UVA protection, that is longer wavelengths and penetrates more deeply. It does not cause a sunburn. It does contribute to premature skin aging, to long-term tanning, and to some forms of skin cancer. And UVC, generally speaking, is the um, shortest wavelength and most powerful. So actually, the shorter the wavelength on this, it's more powerful. That's why you're getting that burn versus the tan. But that short wavelength doesn't get through, generally doesn't get through the ozone layer. So you're not generally exposed to UVC. Thank you. Thank you for that that, that quick rundown. Um, I wasn't really clear about that either. And you had just finished the ingredients in, in uh, chemical sunscreen before. What should people look for when they, when they see? What, what, from your perspective as the Director of Product Development for Badgerbaum, what would be a really good choice when it comes to mineral-based or blocking sunscreen um, that, that don't work on, on a chemical reaction in the skin? Sure. Uh, well, I think that zinc oxide is going to be your best choice. There are there's zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are your two mineral options. And uh, zinc oxide gives you the best broad spectrum protection. So if you look at that UVA to actually UVC range, zinc oxide will protect you against almost the entire range, whereas titanium dioxide is really more in the UVB range. Also, um, the titanium dioxide is much more whitening. So you have to either use nanoparticle titanium dioxide, which there are some concerns around that, or it's going to be very whitening. The benefit to the titanium dioxide is it gives that extra UVB boost. It will do better in the UVB range, whereas the zinc oxide is really much a straight line across the whole spectrum. 
you won't get quite as high SDF, but you can certainly get over an SDF 30 with zinc oxide alone. So I would only use either a combination of zinc oxide and titanium dioxide or just zinc oxide. And we really think that Badger, we've chosen to use just zinc oxide, and that's because of the research we've done on which one's most effective by itself and also has the fewest health concerns. I am feeling so incredibly educated. I'm a th- over 30-year-old woman who've never understood this at all. And now I feel like <laughs> this is really empowering information mm-hmm. to take care of yourself, particularly in these months, but really for all months of the year. And I would love to touch with you on, on one more thing before we let you go. We could really just keep this conversation going because it's clear there's so much more to understand. But you alluded to um, a, a Safe Sun campaign that you are doing with the Environmental Working Group. Um, Helga, do you want to yeah, tag you, on to that? We are kind of coming full circle, actually. Mark was talking about the brim, uh, the big brim hat and the staying out and uh, you know, wearing a T-shirt maybe in addition. What is the campaign you, you were involved in, you de- um, co-designed uh, with the Environmental Working Group, the, the Slow Sun campaign? Uh, where can people get more information on, on this show if they want to follow up on products? Uh, perhaps on the Badger Bomb site uh, or the Environmental Working Group site? What's, what is the campaign about and where, where is more information to be found? The Environmental Working Group has done an amazing job in helping to empower and educate people about sun protection. And Badger got into making sunscreen back in 2005. There were virtually no sunscreens there, not much sunscreen education or sun protection education back then. And when the Environmental Working Group released their first report, they do a sun safety report, really, and they they were the first ones to call out that not all sunscreens protect against UVA and UVB, and that one in four sunscreens had chemicals that might be carcinogenic or harmful or don't protect against UVA and UVB, and then they listed about 700 sunscreens based on safety and efficacy, and so we got into sunscreen because our sunscreen was listed number one out of those sunscreens, so that kind of launched us into the sunscreen world because we had this focus on safety from the very beginning when most other people were focused on making spray sunscreens or the highest SDS, and we wanted to make something that was really safe. What we realized about a year and a half ago or two years ago is that people rely too much on sunscreen. And so I loved how Mark started by talking about wearing a hat, a long sleeve shirt and shade, and we wanted to promote that as really sun safety as being a whole package. It's not just the sunscreen you buy. People shouldn't just be lazy about this. It's actually a lifestyle shift. So Badger on our own created what we were calling the slow sun campaign and this is kind of based off the idea of a slow food movement that people needed to take sun in a a very different way and that they couldn't just you know slap on some sunscreen and go sunbathe all day that that's not going to keep you safe Um, and so we created this campaign and when we were starting to create this campaign I had a fortuitous lunch meeting with Ken Cook, founder and president of the Environmental Working Group, who created the Sun Protection Guide that had been really instrumental in helping people to learn more about sun protection and safe sunscreens. And so he talked about wanting to create this sun safety campaign for the Environmental Working Group as well. And we decided it would be really great to collaborate that, you know, there are other people in the industry that have a really wide voice who would like to contribute to not just selling sunscreen, but to educating people about safe sun measures. So just a few weeks ago, over Memorial Day weekend, the EWG launched their sun safety campaign, and they worked with about a dozen sunscreen companies that were rated really highly for safety and efficacy on their guide and who really wanted to support 
uh, education beyond sunscreen. And so there's actually a great website. It's the Environmental Working Group, and it's backslash sun safety, but I'm not entirely sure if that's the exact address, but there's uh, a lot of amazing information, and they collaborated with us, but they also collaborated with uh, dermatologists, with uh, researchers, with healthcare practitioners. So they really worked across all sorts of different fields to put together this campaign, and, there's, um, and we're hoping to have it continue over the next few years and grow and build and, and really hopefully shift the mindset around sun protection. Thank you for that work, Rebecca. Yes, yes, exactly. And we have that website. We um, prepared it for our listeners, ewg.org forward slash sun safety. Rebecca, this has been so enlightening. Got your back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for helping us understand this really complex issue and allow us to make healthier choices. We're so excited to keep tabs on what you at Badger Balm and also in in. Um, conjunction with the environmental working group are doing to help educate sunbathers. So yeah, interesting again. that that Absolutely. there's not much media really around it, other than you know maybe here and there an article. But so we we happily gave this hour to the topic of sunscreen and thank you for being such fabulous guest, Rebecca Hamilton, the director of product development for Badger Balm. That's badgerbalm.com. And again, the website for more information on the Environmental Working Group Slow Sun Campaign is... It's ewg.org forward slash sun safety. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time today and for all the information. Thank, thank you for having Wonderful me. Wonderful to have you. <laughs> Take, Take care. care. Bye, bye, Rebecca. Bye-bye now. Bye. Wonderful. Wow. Okay. That was <laughs> necessary. That was false. So necessary. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Uh, it really a topic not discussed in the public, really. And wow, I'm glad we picked that topic. I didn't know that this much information was needed to educate well and show all the alternatives and have a smart way of dealing with the sun and not just lather on an inch thick sunscreen over two weeks at the beach this summer. There are alternatives and they are important. Uh, you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And coming up is more things to do, which is to eat produce, fresh fruits and <laughs> vegetables. This is the time to bathe, not just in the ocean or in the lake, but also in maybe some berry compote or whatever we have Mark has up his sleeve what's in season Well, here we are at uh, What's in Season, and of course on the line we've got Earl Herrick, the voice of the produce market, joining us from Earl's Organic Produce in San Francisco, California. Earl, what the heck is going on out there in produce <laughs> world? <laughs> wow, I mean, you know, that's a big, huge uh, question. This time of year, you know, virtually everything is going on. Well, let's so get down to go. berries then. So what's, what's going on in berries? I'm seeing strawberries well, on sale. I'm seeing blueberries that have kind of gone down and they're going up. Well, let, me, and, well, let, me, let me say, you know, when I say Cher and Bono and Ichiro and Obama, LeBron, Miles, all those are one-word associations, right? And, you, and we all know what they mean. So in the fruit world, what we have is straws, blues, raz, blacks. And we all know that they're berries because, you know, they're totally relatable and they're almost universally enjoyed. So as in almost every year, we have a great abundance again. And that's the curious thing when I take a look at every year on the berry side, 
because every year is affected by something. And berries are one of those things that get affected very uh, quickly by the two elements of heat and water. But they respond really quickly because in a day or two, the heat uh, spell is broken and the water is passed through because it's summer and bingo, uh, the berries are back in a, a very strong set in a day or two. So almost none of the effects actually get felt by the end user because the supply is so big. There's just huge amounts of acreage planted to all the, I would say, the three main berries, blueberries, strawberries, and raspberries. So what we find ourselves again in is a, is a very abundant year. What I find kind of interesting this year is there, if you go into a store, you're going to see, hopefully, at least I am and my customers are, different configurations of the berries, meaning that you can, find, you can buy different container sizes. Yeah, one you know, of the things I'm seeing are those long, flat containers. Now they're they're the long yeah. rectangle, um, yeah. which is uh, you know are, I've seen them in the conventional world, but not so much in the organic world until lately. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing uh, much more uh, prominence of a two two pound pack, also known as a family pack, obviously because you get a lot more. And what's so good about it is that you know you get a better price, and, and for families, well, I don't. I'm pretty sure we all agree we buy a. Uh, a basket of blueberries or strawberries, and you know, by the time we're out of the parking lot, it's gone. <laughs> so, you know, you you get those bigger containers, so you have something to have when you get home. So it's it's a I think it's a better deal because one you you get you can it's a one buy you don't have to buy three or four containers, and on also it's it's uh, economically it's a it's a better way to go. So strawberries are abundant right now. What's going on with blues? Well, blues, uh, another great year because there's just more and more acreage being uh, cultivated, and it's, they're huge in the South America now, so you, we get them in the off-season. And locally in California, the season starts earlier every year as more and more acreage. And I think uh, the development of early ripening berries is, uh, becomes more prolific. So the season now, I used to say pretty much through the middle of May on, now you're starting uh, April 1st. And it'll go, for example, by July 1 or the middle of July, we're into the northwest berries up in Oregon and Washington, and that'll even extend into uh, Canada. So we have a nice, long, prolific season ahead of us. Well, and then if you're in different places like Minnesota and places like that, you're going to start seeing your own local berries coming on, too, here coming around July or, or August or something like that, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Michigan's a huge uh, uh, berry uh, place. There's all on the coast. The Caroline is up to Delaware. You know, coastal areas handle berries very, very well because they, they have that very mild uh, climate, which is what you, what, you, what you need because you don't want it too hot or too cold and obviously low, low uh, moisture. Well, that sounds perfect. So everybody go out and buy some berries. Uh, go look for your favorites out there, and we will talk to Earl next week when he comes back on the airways as the voice of the produce market. <laughs> berry forward year. To it. It's a berry year. Thank you, Earl. Absolutely. Great, great to talk to you all. <laughs> Thanks you so much. You too. Bye, Bye. Bye, Earl. Bye now. Of course, he meant in the beginning um, radio hosts like Helga, Mark, and Sita, right? Single names. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course. That yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. Uh, what about Mark? What about Loganberries and Huckleberries? And those you can't really find in stores, right? Rarely. Mm, well, Logan's you're going to get a Loganberry is going to be more like a part of the blackberry family, like Alala berries, and we didn't get a chance to get into that today. Alala. Huckleberries. It depends on what area of the country you are. You can get Huckleberries up in Boise and Idaho. You know, Idaho and places like that. 
that they're pretty common. Gooseberries. But, it, you know, what people are seeing mostly in the stores right now are the things that Earl brought up. Blacks, blues, raz, uh, straws. And it's a good year. It's a good year. <laughs> that is great. Well, that was this week's edition, packed in one hour, but happy to bring <laughs> to you of an organic conversation. We'll see you again next week. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash an organic conversation thank you for your contribution an organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters earl's organic produce a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store home or business since 1988 the website is earlsorganic.com and also fry vineyards america's first certified organic winery producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.